Welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha, a podcast shared by David Roylance. This podcast is dedicated to guiding you to completely eliminate the discontent mind and the suffering it causes by attaining enlightenment. Learn and practice the teachings of Gotama Buddha that will guide you to fully attain a peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy. To support this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha or visit buddhadailywisdom.com where you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online learning resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Now, here's our teacher to share more. Sawadikap. Hello and welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha. Today is our group learning program where we study the words of the Buddha in this book titled Developing a Life Practice, The Path That Leads to Enlightenment. In this book, I share with you the path to enlightenment to help you build a foundation so that you can progress on this path and move the mind through training it to this peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy that is the enlightened mind so that you no longer experience any anger, sadness, frustration, irritation, annoyance, guilt, shame, or fear. It's this path to enlightenment that is guiding you through the words of the Buddha to help you understand how to actively train the mind and move it to this enlightened mental state. And one of the primary things that the mind sometimes experiences is fear. And oftentimes someone can be really plagued with their fear. It often inhibits us from pursuing things that we're interested in doing in life, or it impacts us in terms of how we conduct our daily life. So in today's class, I'm going to share with you how to eliminate fears. And this will be really helpful for you so that you can target your fears and be sure that you eliminate them as part of the path to enlightenment. In order to share with you how to eliminate fears, I'm going to first share with you the three universal truths, the four noble truths, and helping you to understand the problem in the unenlightened mind, the cause, the elimination, and the path forward to completely eliminate discontentedness from the mind. I covered this at different times in our program, and most notably back in chapter four. So now that we're in chapter 17 of this book, I'd like to refresh those of you that have maybe been joining this class regularly. And if you're joining us for the first time, this will be an opportunity for you to learn the Four Noble Truths and the Three Universal Truths as a building block. So I'd like to welcome all of you to our class and help you to learn this very important teaching that's going to improve the condition of the mind so that you're no longer plagued by any kind of fears. So let's talk about the three universal truths first, and then I'll help you to understand the four noble truths through first understanding the three universal truths. In order to progress to the point where you're understanding the Four Noble Truths and you're practicing them on a regular basis, this is what we would call right view. And the Buddha talks about how a student who has right view and is practicing right view very well, they've had this breakthrough to understand what's causing the discontent mind. Because when we're unenlightened and we're off the path to enlightenment, we don't necessarily understand why we get sad or why we get angry or why we get frustrated or why do we have fear. The unenlightened mind lacking the wisdom of this 
oftentimes doesn't understand what it doesn't understand. So by learning the Four Noble Truths and the Three Universal Truths as a foundation, you can have this breakthrough to establishing right view. And in this situation, then you'll be able to then apply all the rest of the teachings of the Buddha in order to actually eliminate discontentedness. Without establishing right view early in your journey to enlightenment, you would have no opportunity to actually experience enlightenment because you wouldn't know what's causing the discontent feelings. So therefore, you wouldn't be able to eliminate them. So I'm going to walk you through piece by piece today, helping you understand this. And then we're going to share how to eliminate fears because fear is one type of discontent feeling. And as I share these teachings with you, it's important that you learn them, you reflect on them, starting to independently verify them through looking inward at the experiences that you've had in life to try to determine if these teachings are true or not. And then you move these teachings into practice, and that's where you really start seeing the truth for yourself. So as I go in our talk today, I'm going to be guiding you in learning, of course, helping you learn these teachings. Then I'll start helping you do this inner reflection where you can start independently verifying the teachings on your own, even here in class. And then I'll share with you how to practice these teachings so that you can really benefit and start transforming the mind. You shouldn't believe anything that I have to share with you. Belief isn't going to lead to wisdom. In order to progress closer and closer to enlightenment and actually attain enlightenment, you would need to acquire wisdom. You can't get to enlightenment through belief. So learning, reflecting, and practicing is how you get to wisdom so that then with this wisdom, you can transform the mind, making better and better choices in your life and also how to actually train the mind. So let's talk about this first universal truth. The first universal truth is called the universal truth of impermanence. This is where you understand that all these objects around us are completely impermanent. They're temporary. They're not going to be permanent or fixed. So this book, this book is just a piece of paper, a bunch of pieces of paper, a bunch of different fibers from a tree that have been put together in this form. But it's not going to stay this book forever. Over time, it's going to deteriorate. In fact, it's already starting to because it's got some brown marks on it. It's got some bent pages. But over the course of 50 years, 100 years, this book will eventually no longer exist anymore because it's impermanent. The same thing with your clothes or your physical body or all these other things that are around. They are impermanent. Just like the feelings that you experience in the mind, they are impermanent. So this universal truth of impermanence is what I just taught you, is that things in the world are constantly changing. There's no permanent fixed state. All the material objects, possessions, relationships, thoughts, ideas, states of mind, essentially everything in the world is constantly changing. All conditioned feelings will cease to exist because what a conditioned feeling is, is that it arises, it changes, and it fades away. That's what we call a conditioned feeling. As things arise, they will change and fade away. So this book at one time, it wasn't a book. It arose by people assembling it into a book and then now it's changing constantly and then eventually it will fade away and no longer exist because it's a conditioned object. So the Buddha described all conditioned objects are impermanent. 
now that you've learned this, you start reflecting on it. You start to try to independently verify it. Because if this is a universal truth, you should be able to see the truth in this no matter where you are, whether you're in the US, in Canada, in the UK, in Japan, in Australia, in India, in South America, no matter where you are in the world, you should be able to look around and see that things are impermanent. If you can find something that's permanent, then you've disproven the Buddha, and this isn't a universal truth. So you can walk down the street, you can look at the sidewalk and see that the sidewalk is solid, and then there's a crack. That's impermanence. You can look at a tree and see green leaves in a tree, and then brown leaves on the ground that have fallen out of the tree. This is impermanence. You can be walking down the street and it can be nice and sunny outside, and then a cloud can come in front of the sun and change the lighting. This is impermanence. You can look at your physical body and you can see that the physical body has been constantly changing, that it hasn't been in one fixed state. Your hair is constantly growing. Maybe it changes colors, it changes textures. Relationships have been coming and going out of your life. Your income has changed going up and down over your life. Your job has changed. You've been having different jobs. It hasn't been just one permanent fixed job. And even that job that you have, if you have the same job from a certain time in your life and you had that, say, for 40 or 50 years, eventually you'll get to the point where you're not employed there anymore. So this is impermanence, right? And if you don't see this truth for yourself just through our brief little chat here, then what I encourage you to do is go around the world and look for things that are permanent. See if you can find something that's permanent. And if you need to do that for a couple of hours or a couple of days or a couple of weeks, get to the point where you've developed in the mind this understanding of impermanence. Soak it deep in the mind that there's this universal truth of impermanence and all these things around us are impermanent. Enlightenment itself is permanent because it's unconditioned. This is something we're gonna talk about towards the end of this program. There's a frequently asked question in the book that asks, you know, why is enlightenment permanent? And I'll explain to you why. So the Buddha never said everything is impermanent. That's why I say here that everything is constantly changing, that everything in the world is constantly changing in terms of material objects, in terms of feelings and things like this. This is constantly changing. But what the Buddha shared is all conditioned objects are impermanent. And then there's something called an unconditioned object, which enlightenment is an unconditioned object. But we'll get to that another time. The second universal truth is the universal truth of discontentedness. This is explaining what an unenlightened mind experiences, that an unenlightened mind is going to experience pleasant feelings, painful feelings, and feelings that are neither painful nor pleasant. Discontentedness is describing the nature of the mind when it's shaken up, it's unsteady, it's uncalm. So when a mind is experiencing pleasant feelings like happiness, excitement, elation, thrill, exhilaration, euphoria, the mind is excited in this excited state. It's uncalm, it's unsteady. Same thing when the mind is experiencing painful feelings like sadness, anger, frustration, irritation, annoyance, guilt, shame, fear, stress, anxiety. These are all very painful to experience. And then there's feelings that are neither painful nor pleasant. 
I say, and I put in here that boredom and loneliness is neither painful nor pleasant, but some people say that that's quite painful for them. So you could put that in the painful category if you like. But something like shyness, it's not painful, it's not pleasant, it's neither painful nor pleasant. Or if somebody that you didn't know came and sat really, really close to you and your bodies were touching side by side, it's not painful, it's not pleasant, it's kind of displeasing, it's kind of uncomfortable. The mind is kind of unsatisfied. This is neither painful nor pleasant. So the way that you take this and start reflecting on it now that you've learned it is you say, okay, this is what the Buddha and David are saying is the experience that the unenlightened mind is going to have. So now try to come up with any feeling that you experience that doesn't fit into one of these three categories. If you can come up with one feeling that doesn't fit into these three categories, then once again, it's not a universal truth because a universal truth should hold true no matter where you are, no matter what, it should always hold true because it's a universal truth. So if you can find just one feeling that doesn't fit into one of these three categories, then you've disproven this and it's not a universal truth. So here, this is where some people in the Buddhist community will use the word suffering. I don't suggest that you use the word suffering because it only describes painful feelings, which is only 33% of what the Buddha was teaching. That means that you're missing 66% of his teachings on this particular topic. So if we continue to use the word suffering, it doesn't fully represent what it is that the Buddha was describing, and you're not going to be able to understand right view and how to actually get to enlightenment. You would need to understand that discontentedness is pleasant feelings, painful feelings, and neither painful nor pleasant. When you're happy or you're excited or elated or thrilled, you wouldn't say you were suffering. Or if that stranger was sitting next to you on the bus and their bodies were touching, maybe you wouldn't say you were suffering, right? So this word doesn't actually describe what the Buddha is talking about here in this universal truth and what the mind is ultimately working to eliminate is these conditioned feelings. So if we continue to use the word suffering, then we're misrepresenting what the Buddha was teaching and we're not fully understanding. So by using the word discontent, discontented or discontentedness, now we can fully represent what it is that the Buddha was describing here. And then the next one is the universal truth of non-self. This one isn't necessarily so important to understand the four noble truths, but it is an important teaching that you need to understand in order to get to enlightenment. And we talked about this more last week in depth. What the universal truth of non-self is, is this is helping you to understand that there is no permanent self, that this physical body nor this mind is who you are. This isn't the self. But the problem in the unenlightened mind is the unenlightened mind thinks that this physical body or this mind is who you are. There's a certain self-image that is created with the physical body, and that is projected into the world by the unenlightened mind thinking that this is who you are. So then when you hear something agreeable, the mind gets these pleasant feelings. But then when you hear something disagreeable, you might experience these painful feelings associated with somebody commenting about the self-image or this physical body. Like, I like your shirt. It's so beautiful. Oh, maybe pleasant feelings. Oh, are you going to wear that shirt today? I didn't know you were going to wear that. 
Now maybe you get painful feelings as a result. And then likewise with the self-identity or the mind, there are certain things that the mind is holding on to that if you hear agreeable things or disagreeable things, the mind is going to be shaken up with either pleasant feelings or painful feelings. So if I am a Buddhist teacher and I hear that somebody is commenting positively or agreeably about Buddhist teachers are lovely, they're so generous, they help everybody, then maybe there's pleasant feelings that come into the mind. And if the mind thinks that I am a Buddhist teacher, then you hear something disagreeable. Maybe someone talks negatively or harsh or unkind about Buddhist teachers. Now the mind might get angry or frustrated or irritated based on this. But if you don't identify with I am a Buddhist teacher, meaning I am, that's who I am as a person, I in terms of the self, when you let that go and you realize that this physical body nor the identity in the mind, that's not who you are as a person because these things are constantly changing. So this is a little bit on the universal truth of non-self. This is what helps you to eliminate the fetter or taint or pollution of mind described as personal existence view. And the way that you can now take this from learning and start to reflect on it is you can look at how you viewed yourself when you were a child, a teenager, early adulthood, and maybe now. How you viewed yourself in terms of your self-image and your self-identity has been constantly changing. This is how you know that there is no permanent self because the way you viewed yourself at one time in your life has changed. There is no permanent self. Another way is you can take your finger and point and say, you know, where is David? And if you point to this shirt, then this shirt isn't David. This isn't who I am. And then if we take that shirt off and we point again, there's skin there. That's not David. And then if we take that off, then there's bones and fluid and tissue and organs. None of this is David. So this physical body isn't David. But the problem in the unrelated mind is there's this label given to us at birth and we think that this is who we are as a person. So then our mind gets shaken up and uncalm and it's unpeaceful and unsteady when we hear agreeable or disagreeable things about our self-image or our self-identity. And in order to get to enlightenment, an individual would need to realize non-self, essentially eliminating the pollution of mind that we call personal existence view, viewing this physical body or this mind as your personal existence of who you are. So let me pause here before we go into talking about the Four Noble Truths and see what questions you guys might have about the three universal truths. You can ask your question by putting that into Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom, and our moderator will help you to get your question asked during the class. Or if you're in Zoom, you can electronically raise your hand and ask any questions or follow-up questions directly. It doesn't seem to be any questions yet, sir. Okay. So since there's no questions on the three universal truths, let's go forward into discussing another building block that you're going to need in order to understand the Four Noble Truths. In order to understand the Four Noble Truths, you're also going to need to understand the word craving, desire, attachment, or expectations, wants, holding, grasping, clinging. These words in common language might be used in a certain way, but in Buddhist teachings, there's a certain way that we use these words 
that are important for you to understand so that you can then have this breakthrough in understanding the Four Noble Truths. What a craving, desire, attachment is, this is a mental longing for something with a strong eagerness. This is how the mind pulls in the direction for the objects of its affection. Let me give you some examples of this. If you saw a new pair of shoes on TV and you're like, oh my goodness, that new pair of shoes, I just gotta have it, I gotta have it, I gotta have it. That's the craving, desire, attachment, the mental longing and strong eagerness. The mind is pulling in the direction of the objects of its affection. Or if you have children and you just want your children to get good grades, you have this expectation, you're wanting, you're longing, you're yearning for it. Your mind is pulling in the direction of the objects of its affection. This is a craving, desire, attachment. And then there's other cravings too. There's all kinds. The mind can be attached to countless different things. Any kind of material objects or any kind of things in life, you don't need to actually get rid of these things, which you'll hear when we talk about the Four Noble Truths. You just need to train the mind to understand what this is so that then when we talk about the Four Noble Truths, you'll be able to then understand what's causing the discontentedness. So here, craving, desire, attachment is wants or expectations. This is the mental longing for something, having a strong eagerness, wanting the objects of your affection, the mind pulling towards the direction for the objects of its affection. It can be material objects, but it can also be things in the mind. Like if you really wanted a vacation or you really wanted a promotion at work, or you really wanted more money and you're, you know, the mind is just wanting it and wanting it and wanting it. And it thinks that if it gets this object, that it's going to create lasting satisfaction. It's going to create lasting fulfillment. So this is what a craving desire attachment is. This is how we use this in Buddhist teachings, describing this aspect of the mind. So once again, you've learned this, but now start reflecting on it. Thinking back into your life, thinking about experiences, maybe even today or yesterday or the day before, think about things that your mind was pulling towards, wanting the objects of its affection. That's what craving desire attachment is. You almost feel the mind pulling towards it, almost like you can't live without it. The mind will kind of convince itself of that. So this is a craving desire attachment. Now let's talk about the Four Noble Truths. Now, typically when I share the teachings of the Buddha, I will use the Buddha's words because it's his words and his teachings that will lead you to enlightenment. His words on the Four Noble Truths are actually quite detailed and they're kind of more of like an intermediate level of understanding to be able to understand what it is that he's teaching in his Four Noble Truths. But what I've done here is I've summarized his Four Noble Truths in a way that makes it easy for you to understand, something that you can learn, reflect on, and start to practice right away. And then later, you might decide to explore the Four Noble Truths in the way that the Buddha explained them. And those are in chapter four of this volume one of the book series. And they're also in other parts of this book series as well. So I've got the words of the Buddha in there, but typically it takes a lot more foundational understanding before somebody can understand those. Here, I can help you understand and establish right view in a relatively short period of time if you're doing the work to learn and understand and reflect and then practice so that you can independently verify this. So this first noble truth is that everyone that is unenlightened will experience discontentedness. So those pleasant feelings, painful feelings, 
and feelings that are neither painful nor pleasant. This is what the first noble truth is explaining to you, is that you will experience these if the mind is unenlightened. That when you get the objects of your affection, you're going to experience these pleasant feelings of happiness, excitement, elation, or thrill, or euphoria. If you don't get the objects of your affection, then you're going to experience these painful feelings like anger, sadness, frustration, and others. And then there's these neither painful nor pleasant feelings. So everyone that is unenlightened is going to experience discontentedness, these conditioned feelings. Now let's understand what those are and what's causing it. This is captured in the second noble truth. Discontentedness is caused by our own cravings, desires, attachments, because the mind wants everything to be permanent when everything in the world is impermanent. So I'm going to say that a few times and I'm going to give you some examples. I'm going to help you see this more and more clearly. But remember, you have to learn. You'll need to then reflect and then you'll need to practice in order to really understand it and see the truth for yourself and independently verify this. So discontentedness, those pleasant feelings, painful feelings, neither painful nor pleasant, is caused by our own cravings, desire, attachments. So discontentedness is caused by this mental longing and a strong eagerness, chasing after the objects of our affection. So those pleasant feelings are caused by this mental longing and strong eagerness. Those painful feelings are caused by this mental longing and strong eagerness. Those neither painful nor pleasant feelings are also caused by the same thing. Because the mind wants everything to be permanent when everything in the world is impermanent. So let me give you some examples and then I'll open up to questions and allow you guys to ask any questions that you like. So if you've ever had a boyfriend or a girlfriend or a significant relationship that you've been together with this person, when you guys first got together, there might have been these pleasant feelings that came into the mind because somebody was giving you attention. Somebody was interested in talking to you. Somebody was interested in spending time with you. Somebody was having different conversations or inviting you out or spending time at home together. This arose pleasant feelings in the mind because there was this craving, this mental longing, this yearning to be with somebody else. And when this other person was showing attention, there was these happiness, excitement, and elation or thrill that came into the mind as these cravings were fulfilled that you got the objects of your affection. So these pleasant feelings arose in the mind. But then at some point as the relationship went, there were, were difficulties or problems and the relationship ended. And now the mind experienced painful feelings, anger or sadness or frustration or other feelings like this. This is because the relationship was impermanent. The mind was craving permanence. It had this mental longing and strong eagerness, wanting this relationship to be permanent and it didn't understand impermanence. It didn't understand that this relationship is impermanent and it ended. And the mind was holding on. It wanted, it craved, it yearned, it longed for this relationship to be permanent. And when it met with this impermanence, the unenlightened mind didn't understand it. It didn't have the wisdom of the universal truth of impermanence. So when the relationship ended, the mind was still holding on. It was still craving for this relationship to be permanent. And therefore, it experienced sadness or anger, frustration or irritation or annoyance or any of these other discontent feelings. 
Another example might be if you had a car and it got a scratch on it. You come out and you see this scratch, you might get so angry or frustrated. This is the mind craving permanence, wanting to keep this car looking permanently beautiful. Now it would be wonderful if nobody ever scratched our car, but that's not possible because of the universal truth of impermanence. There's going to be a situation where this car gets scratched or the paint's going to fade or the tires are gonna get old or whatever it is. It's not possible for this car to remain permanently looking beautiful because of the universal truth of impermanence. So when the mind came out and saw this scratch, not understanding and lacking wisdom, not understanding true reality. The mind saw this impermanence, didn't understand it, and then immediately perhaps got angry or frustrated. There's been people that have been killed or murdered over this and wasted their entire life just because their mind was craving permanence. So this second noble truth is explaining to you what's causing the discontentedness. It's the craving desire attachment, the mental longing in a strong eagerness, wanting things to be permanent when all of these things are impermanent. So let me pause here and see what questions you guys have. And the way that I would like to suggest that you guys ask your own questions, of course, but also as you start reflecting on this and you start trying to independently verify this, look over your life and see if this is what's describing what you experience. If you've been angry or frustrated recently or in the past, you should be able to see your cravings, desires, attachments, that your mind is actually causing your own discontentedness. If you're having trouble seeing that, just raise your hand or put the question into Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom and let me know what the situation is and that you're having difficulty seeing how you cause this discontent feelings. Because what we typically do in the unenlightened state, lacking this wisdom of the Four Noble Truths, is we blame other people for our anger and our sadness and our frustration and all these other discontent feelings. So if your mind isn't yet seeing this clearly and able to independently verify it, meaning you're struggling to have this breakthrough, ask questions so that I can help you see with your actual examples of how your mind is causing these discontent feelings. So you can put those into Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom, or you can raise your hand in Zoom and ask any questions you like. And then once you understand the first and second noble truth, we'll move on to the others and I'll help you understand those. Yes, sir. Uh, has asked in, in uh, Zoom, just to confirm that I understand this correctly, experiencing is happening all the time through six senses, but there is no self that is experiencing it. That's right. It's just the six sense bases taking in information into the mind. And the mind, based on its cravings, desires, attachments, this is what's causing the mind to be shaken up, unsteady, uncalm, or discontent. Another question in, in YouTube. Now, I was distracted. I had some technical difficulties. Uh, but middle way, so I'm not sure whether this is answered. Middle way, I would like to get more detail on how to implement the non-self. Practice the personal existence as non-self with an example. I understand the concept, but when the craving, desire, attachment is appear, the knowledge of non-self fades away. Okay, let's talk about that at the end, Tony. If you can ask that question again, if we have time towards the end, I'd like to just focus on the first and second noble truth. 
because this question is more related to last week's class, and that's okay. We can make time for this at the end of today's class. Okay, for sure, sir. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Are there any other questions? Uh, that's all. Seems to be all the questions, sir. Okay, so let's go. Let's go on then. So this second noble truth is helping you to understand that your mind is causing its own discontentedness through craving, desire, attachment, the mental longing and strong eagerness. So since that craving, desire, attachment is what's causing the discontentedness, the third noble truth is explaining that the elimination of discontentedness is possible by eliminating craving, desire, attachment. So if you can eliminate the craving, desire, attachments, the mental longing and strong eagerness, essentially basing your inner feelings on some impermanent condition. If you can eliminate that, gain control and discipline over the mind, no longer allowing it to long and yearn, if you can learn to restrain the mind and pull it back, then you can eliminate discontentedness. So the way that we train to eliminate the craving, desire, attachment is breathing mindfulness meditation and practicing generosity. Because when you're focused on the breath and the mind runs away, either to the past or the future or what have you, you're cutting that off, letting it go and coming back to the breath. And then when it longs and yearns again, you're cutting it off and bringing it back, bringing it back, bringing it back. This is training your mind to have awareness of mind, to have concentration by focusing on a single object like the breath. And it's training the mind to easily let go because the problem that the unenlightened mind has is it's yearning, it's longing, it, it can't let go. It's craving this permanence. So in meditation, you're more readily training the mind over multiple, multiple sessions over weeks and months and years to let go, let go, come back to the breath, let go, come back to the breath, come back to the breath. So you're not eliminating the thoughts in breathing mindfulness meditation. You're training the mind to arise awareness, to arise concentration and to be easily able to let go of things so that now in daily life, when things arise in the mind that your mind is chasing after or longing after or yearning for, you can easily let that go. So that comes with training. And not only is breathing mindfulness meditation doing that, but the practice of generosity, giving and sharing more than is strictly required of your time, effort, energy, and resources. This is where you don't have any expectations of anything in return. You're practicing generosity with the people around you so that then the mind is willing to let go. Because if you're not practicing generosity, that means the mind's holding on. It's very selfish. It's holding on really tightly. So when you give things like your time, effort, energy, and resources, and you share, and you're willing to do that without any expectation of anything in return, now the mind can be trained to let go and no longer hold on, which is what craving, desire, attachment, these wants, these expectations, this clinging, this holding, this is what the mind's doing and it's causing itself discontentedness. So the breathing mindfulness meditation and generosity is training the mind to let go so that now you can work on eliminating these attachments. You can eliminate the craving desire attachments. So if you understand the second noble truth that the craving desire attachment is what's causing the discontentedness, then the third noble truth just makes so much sense because you need to eliminate the craving desire attachments, gain control or discipline of the mind so that then the mind will reside in the middle, no longer longing or yearning. 
And then the fourth noble truth is that the path to eliminating discontentedness is the Eightfold Path. This is the complete and perfect plan that the Buddha explains to help you train the mind and develop your life practice so that you can progress and actually attain enlightenment. The Eightfold Path has eight individual steps and it's separated into three sections or three categories. Wisdom, moral conduct, and mental discipline. Right view, which is what you're working on establishing now with the Four Noble Truths, is right view. Right view would be to understand that you're responsible for your own discontent mind, that the feelings and the thoughts and everything that's coming up in the mind, you're actually causing all of this yourself. And wrong view would be to blame other people for our anger or our frustration or our sadness or any other discontent feelings, that blaming other people would be wrong view. And when we have wrong view, we not only are blaming people and we typically have unskillful conduct in terms of our intention, speech, and actions, but we will typically try to control people and we'll try to get people to do things our way. And if we can just get people to do things our way, the mind thinks it's going to be peaceful and content, but it's not. It's only temporary. You can't force 7.5 billion people in the world to do things your way. So you need to train your mind to understand that when it's angry or sad or frustrated or it has these fears that we're going to be talking about today, that this is all being caused by your own mind. This is why I needed to share this with you before we talk about eliminating fears so that you understand that you're causing the fears yourself, that your own mind is causing its fears due to craving, desire, attachment. The mind is holding on. It's longing. It's yearning. It's wanting things to be a certain way. And when it doesn't get that, that's when the mind experiences fear. So as long as the mind gets what it wants, it experiences these pleasant feelings. But when it doesn't get what it wants, it experiences these painful feelings like fear and others. So essentially, the unenlightened mind is essentially acting like a three-year-old child or a five-year-old child throwing a temper tantrum. If you give me what I want, I'll get these pleasant feelings and I'll be happy and excited. But if you don't give me what I want, I'm going to be sad and angry or fearful. I'm going to throw this temper tantrum. So in the store, when the child is asking the parent, you know, can I have a piece of chocolate? And the parent says, sure, you can have a piece of chocolate. Oh, they're so excited, right? But if they say no, maybe the child gets upset or angry or frustrated. Maybe they throw a temper tantrum. This is what the unenlightened mind is doing. So by gaining wisdom of what the problem is and what the solution is, then you can actually fix it. As long as we have wrong view, and we blame other people for our problems, then we can't ever fix it. This is why anger and all these other discontent feelings like fear, they keep happening over and over and over again because the unenlightened mind is lacking the wisdom of how to fix it. Once you understand what the problem is and the solution, then you can actually fix it. If we go around trying to control other people and get them to do things our way, then we're not ever going to fix the problem with our own discontent mind because we can't train 7.5 billion people to do things our way. We can only train our own mind. So the longer that we have wrong view in trying to control other people to do things our way, then we're going to continue to experience these same problems over and over and over again with discontentedness. But once we have that breakthrough and we establish right view, 
Now we deeply understand the problem. The problem is that all unenlightened beings are going to experience discontentedness. The cause of the problem is that discontentedness is caused by craving desire attachment, expecting and wanting things to be permanent when everything is impermanent. The solution is to eliminate craving desire attachment. This is what's going to eliminate discontentedness. And it's the Eightfold Path, which is the complete path that is going to share with you how to actually eliminate discontentedness fully. So now with this understanding of craving, desire, attachment, this mental longing, strong eagerness is what's causing the problem. Now let's look at this unique way of eliminating fears. Already I've shared with you to eliminate craving, desire, attachment, there's this generalized training of breathing mindfulness meditation and practicing generosity. This needs to be a continuous ongoing training in your life. Every single day, practicing generosity, moral conduct, and meditation. This is called the way of practice. That you're always interested in looking to practice generosity, you're improving your moral conduct, and you're practicing meditation, like breathing mindfulness meditation and loving kindness meditation. These are all generalized training that's gradually working to transform the mind. But then when you're aware of fears, there are specific things that you can do in order to eliminate these fears. Fears of death or fears of a spider or fears of heights or fears of being poor or any of these other things, there's lots of fears that the mind may or may not have. You may have overcome some of those fears. But if there are certain fears that you're having right now, I'm going to share with you how to eliminate them. And then after I'm done sharing that with you, we're going to spend the whole rest of the class opening up to all of you guys to help you to eliminate these fears. Because as you share with me what your fears are, I'll be able to give you specific guidance of how to eliminate them. But let me explain to you how to eliminate the fears. And you may be able to understand how to do this with some of the fears yourself. But if you're having difficulties understanding how, then that's where we're going to use our discussion today to help you be able to put together a plan of how to eliminate the fears. So the way that you eliminate the fear is you need to eliminate the craving, desire, attachment in the mind. This is what's going to eliminate the fear. So the mind is longing or yearning. It's holding on, right? It's craving this permanence. And then what you do is you place the mind in a situation that it fears in order to desensitize the mind to whatever it fears, training the mind that there's nothing to fear whatsoever. And essentially, as you're doing this, then you understand the natural law of gamma that as long as you're not causing harm, no harm will come to you. So let me give you some examples. Let's say that you feared spiders and every time you saw a spider, you jumped up on a chair or you yelled and screamed and you're just deathly afraid of spiders. So what this is, is this is the mind craving. It has this mental longing and strong eagerness, never wanting to see spiders. It has this permanence. It wants this permanence to never see spiders. But then because of the universal truth of impermanence, it's not possible for you to never see spiders. There's going to be a time where spiders are going to be around and you're going to see them. So if you hold on to this craving for permanence, never wanting to see a spider, then when you see one, the mind's going to be shaken up. So what you do is you put the mind in this situation 
so that it desensitizes it and it gets acclimated to spiders. And some examples of how you might do this is you might take a magazine or you may take pictures on the internet and you start looking at pictures of spiders. Even though it's gonna be hard, even though it's a struggle, maybe your stomach is cringing, maybe you're looking away, you look at these pictures multiple times over a few sessions until the point where you can look at these pictures and the mind's completely peaceful, it's completely calm, it's not shaken up whatsoever. And then when you see that that's occurred over a few sessions, the mind's now been desensitized to it. You kind of increase the stimulus a bit. Maybe you go to a museum or maybe you go to a friend's house that has preserved spiders spiders that are dead but they're preserved and now instead of just pictures you're kind of looking at the body of some individual spiders and now you look at those over multiple sessions until the mind becomes peaceful and calm and it can do this without having any fear and then you might elevate this even more to where now you go into a natural environment where spiders are maybe in the woods or maybe at a zoo or something like this where you can see spiders moving around and they're actually alive and you probably need to do this multiple times and as you put the mind in this situation it desensitizes itself to this fear realizing that you can now have this experience where you interact with spiders in terms of just looking at them and now there's nothing harmful that's occurred because you didn't cause harm to the spider no harm is coming to you so you do these over multiple sessions and then now you observe the mind when you're at home and a spider comes out is there any fear you have to train the mind to observe with mindfulness and then apply right effort to cut that off and let it go if there's any fear that arises but if you do this desensitization and you desensitize the mind to this you should notice that the mind isn't fearful in these situations. Another example, let's just say you were in a car accident, in a pretty bad car accident, and the mind was fearful of driving in a car. And now, because the mind is holding on and it's craving, it thinks that every time it gets into a car, it's gonna end in an accident, because this is the mind craving permanence, right? It oftentimes will have a certain experience and then it thinks that that experience is going to be repeated over and over and over again because the mind is clinging and it thinks that every time I get into a car, I'm going to get in an accident. This is the mind associating the permanence that when I get into a car, it's going to end up with me being in a hospital and me being hurt. So now the mind is afraid to get in the car and go for a ride. And this can be very impactful in your life because you're gonna to need to get in transportation in order to accomplish things in your life. So the way that you desensitize the mind to this is you get somebody that you trust to drive a car and you sit in the passenger seat. And now you guys drive around the neighborhood just small streets, not much traffic, just really slow, someone you trust and that drives really well, just drives around the neighborhood streets and then comes home and parks and you're done. And now you've associated this drive with now it didn't end in pain, it didn't end in a hospital stay. Now the same thing a few days later or a week later, what have you, that same friend or somebody else who you trust takes you out on a little bit bigger roads and now drives around for a little bit and then comes back. Once again, associating that this car ride ended with me walking into my house and I was completely fine. And then go out on bigger roads, you know, freeways and interstates and things like that. 
And then once you notice that the mind is peaceful and calm in these situations, then you can drive the car in the neighborhood, on small streets, building up your peacefulness and calmness of the mind, gradually acclimating the mind and helping it replace its feelings of the pain that it experienced in the car accident with, I can drive this car, experience no pain, I can drive home, go inside and I can be completely fine. And then once again, you escalate from the neighborhood roads to a little bit busier roads to maybe a freeway or some interstates. And gradually over time, you now acclimate the mind and you replace these memories that the mind is holding on to of this accident and the pain that you experience with now you replace it with these positive experiences. And then this helps you to now eliminate the fears. And you can do this with any and all fears that you have, whether it's a fear of heights, whether it's a fear of death, there's different ways to approach each one of these. And what I would like to do is just open up to all of you guys that you guys might have questions about certain fears that you have, and you might not be able to see how to put together a plan like this. So if you'd like to share any of the fears that you're experiencing, then I can help you to understand how to gradually put together a plan in order to let these fears go so that you no longer are plagued by them and you've desensitized the mind. So if you'd like to put those into Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom in the comment section, just explain what your fear is, and then I will help you to understand how to put together a plan. And if you're in Zoom, you can electronically raise your hand and ask any questions that you like related to what I just shared or certain fears that you might be having, and then I will help you to see how to put together a plan. Yes, sir. Um, I don't know whether it's a fear, I just, or phobia, or I just like to avoid things. <clears throat> but for me, around uh, around deaths, uh, somebody's death, I have a great difficulty going to funerals or, or and that type of thing. So what would you suggest uh, a way for me to overcome that? Sure, let fear, me, sir. sure, let me share that with you, Tony. And before I share that, I, you mentioned something that's really important for me to also share as part of the teachings, is that typically what the unenlightened mind does, because of its lack of wisdom, this unknowing of true reality, is that when it experiences a certain fear and discontentedness of other types as well, it thinks the way to solve the problem is push it away and avoid it. And it thinks that that's what's going to actually solve the problem. So if someone's afraid of heights, they'll just avoid ever going up on a ladder or going up into a high building or something like that. Or if they're afraid of spiders, they think that they can push this away and just never see spiders. Or if they're afraid of the car ride, they think that they can just push it away and avoid going in a car. And this actually solves the problem. So this is the lack of wisdom or the ignorance or the unknowing of true reality that we can't push away these uncomfortable feelings and that solves the problem because the actual problem isn't the spider it's the craving desire attachment that's why right view is so important to establish that you deeply understand craving desire attachment is the problem so that then we can focus on eliminating that rather than pushing the heights away or pushing the spider away or the car ride or the funeral we instead confront it and by confronting it and training the mind in that situation to be calm and peaceful, that's how we actually eliminate the craving desire attachment. So what you can do, Tony, with funerals and deaths and things like this is there's a couple of things. 
of course, going to funerals and training the mind to be there and peaceful and content, that's one way to do it. But more importantly, before there's even a funeral, the way that you do this is you do contemplation of death, where you sit quietly with your eyes closed and you imagine your own death, you imagine the death of people around you, maybe some loved ones or something. You just pick one person, either your own death or maybe your wife or your husband or your child, and you contemplate their death as if they have actually died. You convince the mind that they've died, like you've gotten a phone call from a doctor or a nurse or a police officer, or someone shown up to your house and told you that they're dead, and now you play that out in the mind as almost like you're a fly on the wall. Like you have to go identify the body, you need to go make funeral arrangements, you participate in the funeral, there's the burial or the cremation or whatever it is. You go through all these different things. And the mind may actually become sad, it may become angry, it may become frustrated. You may grieve as part of this. This is you confronting the death on your terms. But then once you confront it like this, then you have to bring the mind to peacefulness and calmness. And you do this over multiple sessions. You can't just do it once and then the mind completely eliminated the craving, desire, attachment. There's this gradual training, this gradual practice that experiences this gradual progress. So if you put the mind in the situation maybe once every two or three weeks or once a month, and you get to the point where you observe the first time you do it, there's gonna be a certain amount of discontentedness, and then it gradually diminishes more and more over each session until you get to the point where you can imagine that person's death and it doesn't affect you. Because it's not the love that's causing the discontentedness at funerals, it's the craving permanence. So death is gonna to come to all of us. We can't avoid sickness, aging, nor death. All of us are going to experience this. And we're gonna have people around us that are close to us who die. So we can wait for death to kind of creep up on us and then we have to deal with the impermanence whenever it happens, or we can confront it on our own terms which means when we feel that the mind's ready, we can sit down, contemplate someone's death, do that over multiple sessions, train the mind to get more and more comfortable with it until the point where the mind accepts it. And it understands that after having done this two, three, four times, that eventually you get to the point in your sessions where the mind is completely peaceful and calm. There's no discontent feelings that arise. One of the other benefits of doing this is not only to train the mind to eliminate the fear of a funeral or someone's death or even your own death if you're afraid of death, but also what I observed when I did this is that I came out of those sessions realizing there were certain things that I hadn't said or certain things that I needed to ask that person. So like for my mom or grandmother, I realized when I contemplated their death that there were certain things I never said to them that had they really died, that I would be left with those questions or those things that I would like to say to them. So when I did this and I came out of these sessions, I just called them up and I was like, hey grandma, I've never told you before, but explained her all these different things. And then there are things where I says, you know, I've never asked you this question, I'm interested in this. You know, Can you answer this question for me? And after I did this multiple sessions and each time I emerged with a handful of questions, I was able to call them and get resolution to the things that I needed, whether they were things that I needed to share or things that I needed to hear. 
to the point where, you know, when my mom died in 2017, there was no grieving, there was no sadness, there was no nothing because I'd already confronted her death. And when it occurred, it was just normal because it was the universal truth of impermanence that, of course, she's going to die at some point. So I didn't have any feelings of grief or shame or anger or sadness or guilt. I didn't feel like there was something that I needed to say to her that I never said. I didn't feel like there was anything I needed to hear from her that I'd never heard because I took care of all those things long, long ago, about 20, 25 years ago. So this really helps you to get to a point of stability and calmness. And when I did this with my mom and my grandmother in my own mind, they didn't know I was doing it, but I did it and then I called them up and dealt with it. And now those additional 20, 25 years of time, it feels like a bonus. It feels like, you know, I kind of convinced the mind that mom or grandmother had died 20, 25 years ago. I grieved then, I was sad then, but then now from that point where the mind let that go until now, it feels like every time I talk to them, every time I interact with them, that it's like bonus time. It's like extra time. So this is something that anybody can do. I suggest that you have a breathing mindfulness meditation practice well established and that you are able to regain your stability of mind with various things that you experience in life. And then when you feel ready, then do this and then as you do it, then put some space between them. You're not interested in doing it like every day because your mind's going to be impacted by it. But each time your mind's impact and discontentment should be less and less. And that's where you see the mind is coming to terms with the impermanence of mom or dad or your life partner or your children or other people like this. This is not only how to eliminate the fear of your own death and the death of others, but it's also how you eliminate attachment. If you have attachment to your life partner or your children, this is the ultimate way to eliminate attachment is to contemplate their death and that they're leaving or that you are leaving them. And this will help you to let go of any kind of attachment that you have. And then you can see that you can actually love without attachment and your relationships can be even more fulfilling. Thank you very much, sir. Now there's a couple of questions in Zoom. Uh, Lindsay has asked, I have a fear of my children getting hurt, specifically when away from home or at school. I know it's an attachment to them, but it's the one attachment I struggle with most. Perfect. So Lindsay, what you would do is you can do this one that I just described where you contemplate death. Remember, you're not planning their death. You're not hoping they will die. You're just convincing the mind that they have died and you walk through the scenarios of that. So you can do that one. You can even do the same thing with them being hurt, right? Like you get a phone call from school that they've broken their arm or broken their leg or you know, something like this, or they have a concussion, and then walk through the scenario of all the steps that you would need to take. Not that you're going to adhere to this should something happen, because something happens, you need to be in the present moment and make wise decisions in the present moment. But what you're doing is you're confronting this fear and realizing that it's not so bad, that you can actually handle it, because someday it will happen. Of course, your children are going to get hurt or injured at some point. And if you allow that impermanence to sneak up on you, your mind's going to be shaken up. Perhaps it's going to be discontent. And now if the mind is shaken up, you make decisions that aren't so wise and they might lead to a worse outcome. It might actually make things worse. So by you confronting it this way in terms of contemplating death, 
or contemplating injuries and things like this, then you can walk through and maybe you experience some discontentedness, which I imagine you will, but then as you do this multiple times, that discontentedness will subside, you'll see the peacefulness and calmness, and then you'll have this composure. And then when these things occur, then you'll be able to handle it quite well because you've already done that and imagined that, convinced the mind that these things have occurred, and it's a matter of keeping the mind in the present moment, staying calm and peaceful as you're making wise decisions to bring whatever situation it is to a peaceful and wholesome resolution. Excuse me, Tonka has asked, fear of physical pain is very strong here. Okay, same thing as you can contemplate experiencing physical pain, like you're out walking and a big piece of steel just drops on you, right? Or you're in a car accident or anything like this. If you have specific fear of a specific type of pain, whether it's like cancer or, you know, some physical injury or something like this, you can go through that and you can confront it and observe how the mind can remain peaceful and calm. And then contemplating your own death because one of the things that is happening here, or the thing that is causing this, this fear of pain, is that the mind is craving the permanent comfort. The mind is craving for the body to permanently be comfortable. And this is impossible. And back to Lindsay, the mind is craving for the child to be permanently healthy, which is impossible because of the universal truth of impermanence. So since we understand the craving of wanting the child to be permanently healthy, or in Tonka's case, craving that the physical body be permanently comfortable. Now what you do is you confront it through contemplating this. And you can also, Tonka, with pain, not that you're interested in inflicting pain, but you can put the body in situations where maybe it's not comfortable, where maybe normally you might stay in the house where there's air conditioning all the time, go outside in the heat or go outside in the cold. You know, even if it's just for two or three or four minutes and training the mind through desensitizing it that, hey, you're not going to always be, you know, cozy and comfortable and luxurious in the house with heat and air conditioning. So you put the body in situations where it's not necessarily comfortable. Not that you're inflicting pain, but you start training the mind, you're not gonna get this permanence, that there are gonna be situations where there's going to be pain. You would like to minimize pain, you know, you can't avoid it, but you'd like to minimize any kind of pain that you have, but as long as you're trying to maintain this permanent comfort, and then when the body is experiencing pain, it's gonna be discontent. So if you put the body in situations like a lot of heat or a lot of cold, things like this, then this can help you. If you have a place that does like really strong massages and maybe you don't like to get that, you can do that and kind of experience a bit of the pain through a massage. This is one of the ways to train the mind that the body's not gonna permanently be comfortable. Uh, Jeffrey in, in uh, Zoom has asked, I have a strange fear, I'm afraid of vomiting. And probably this is coming from a craving to be permanently healthy. 
I'd, I'd need to ask some more questions or you can share some more if you like. Or maybe you had a situation in the past where you have had some violent vomiting. It was uncomfortable for you. And now the mind is holding on to that experience and thinking that that's going to occur again for you. So you're going to need to eliminate this craving for permanent health. Again, you can contemplate this, that the body is going to experience this. You can convince the mind that this has occurred and just understand that that's normal. That's a normal part of life that there's going to be a situation where this body is going to be unhealthy. It's going to be multiple situations in your life. Even an enlightened being, they're still going to experience sickness, right? This is their last time that they're ever going to experience that in this life, but they're still going to experience some sickness. So you need to get comfortable with understanding that this will occur. And if you have had vomiting in the past and it was particularly violent and the mind is holding on to that, then in some situation where there is vomiting, just train the mind to remain calm, train the mind that it's normal, explain to the mind and help the mind understand that it's impermanent, that you might be vomiting for a few minutes or a few hours or what have you, or for a period of time with a certain sickness, but then it's going to be over. It is impermanent because the mind, what it does is when it experiences these things that it doesn't like that are painful, it holds on to it, thinking that this is going to be permanent. Like the car example that I gave you, going out in the car, having a car accident, experiencing that, and then the mind gets this imprint that every time I get into a car, I'm going to experience this pain. So this is the mind holding on. It doesn't want to experience the pain, but it thinks because the mind is holding on to this permanence, it thinks and it associates this car with pain. So it thinks every time it gets into a car, it's going to be painful. So when you're experiencing sickness, you need to train the mind like, hey, this is impermanent. It's not going to be a permanent thing. Jan has her hand raised in Zoom. Well, thank you, Tony. Thank you, Teacher David. Um, I'm going to be um, going to a happy occasion. My son is getting married, uh, but I'm going to have to spend some time um, during the, the festivities around uh, my ex-husband who severely physically abused me. So I've been preparing for this by practicing some loving kindness meditation where I focus on my ex-spouse. And I've been doing, as you suggest, Teacher David, trying to imagine what it's going to be like and um, imagining that, you know, everything will be fine, it will be smooth. But I still feel, I would say, trepidation at the idea that I'll have to be around this person who was violent towards me and, and caused some um, pretty serious physical harm to me. Yeah. So I, I, I don't know if there's any other suggestions. Just continue as I've been doing more. A few other thoughts. I appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah, definitely. That loving kindness meditation is perfect. That's great. The contemplation that you're doing is great. One additional thing that I would share, in addition to what you've already shared, is that if you need to be around him at the event, is to be with other people that you trust and that you know are looking out for your best interest. Not necessarily because of a safety thing, because I think that's going to be fine at a wedding, but 
oftentimes if we have fear of being with somebody, you know, fear of being alone would, would be problematic. So if you have two, three, four people with you as you're around this person, and then maybe there's only two people that you're around this person with, and there's only one person, you know, if you end up needing to be around them in multiple situations, and then ultimately you might be able to build up to the point where, you know, they're standing in one place, you're standing in another place and you're okay with that. And you can also do that gradually, right? You don't have to rush right in and start spending time with this person. So you can do these kind of things gradually. This could be a way to kind of shed some of the negative emotions because the mind is holding on to these negative experiences. So by having three, four, five people, and then you have this positive experience where there's no harm and you go away, and then there's maybe three people, you go together, you have an experience where there's no harm and you go away, and then you reduce the number. This is where the mind replaces those negative experiences that you've had in the past with understanding that you can come in contact with this person and not experience harm. And it's retraining the mind that this is possible. And it replaces those negative experiences with positive experiences. Thank you, teacher David. I'll try that. You're welcome. In Facebook, uh, hopefully I'm pronouncing it right, Vimot, Vimot. A contemplation of death. I can't convincing my mind that this is real happen. Is this because my 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 is trying to run away? I feel like my mind knows that this is a plan. During practice, I thought, why I think negative, etc. How to convince my mind to make it real? I'm afraid that if I die, I will be born in a lower realm, hell, animal, or spirit effect, afflicted. Yeah, so I have some more information that I'm working with this student. So we talked about this this week, and she's tried this contemplation of death. So what you'll need to do is get to the point where you've deeply convincing the mind that this has occurred, you know, whether it's sitting by yourself, sitting in the dark, whether it's just really internalizing that this has occurred, that there's been death or a death of a loved one. You can't just kind of approach it half-heartedly. You know, you really have to get into it and really convince the mind of this having occurred. So that's what's going to help you to get to the point where the mind is convinced that this is going to occur. And it might take you a while that you don't need to rush out and do it right now because when we talked about this the other day, you did it like the next day and you know so there was the teaching and conversation and then boom you tried to do it right away it was kind of forced so do it in a situation where the mind's more acclimated and maybe further away from having the discussion and the instruction because when there's the instruction yeah it feels like a learning exercise right rather than something that you've really convinced the mind to do and in terms of the fear of being reborn into a lower realm you know, just understand that you're making wholesome decisions. You're learning, you're practicing, you're progressing on the path, and there's no need to fear the lower realms. You've been there before. All of us have been. And here we are now, right? So we don't need to fear being reborn into lower realms because we've already been there before. We've already experienced that and we've transcended that. So now's an opportunity for you to progress to the point where you'll never experience those again once you get into that first stage of enlightenment. So just set that aside and really focus on learning and practicing. That's what's going to lead to an improved rebirth if you need to be reborn, or that's what's going to lead to enlightenment where there is no rebirth. 
and Max is asking in, in uh, Zoom, I'm trying to get a different job and I was offered less than I can afford to live. I am trying to negotiate for a livable wage, but I'm afraid of going into debt. This position is my foot in the door to make more money in the future. I understand my income is impermanent, but I still have fears until then. Okay, so this is a craving to hold on to the things that you currently have, right? Because the mind's afraid to be poor, afraid to kind of step down that maybe lose the house or lose possessions or lose things that you have. So this is where you can, once again, you can contemplate this. You can contemplate that you're completely poor, that you've lost everything and see that, hey, it's not bad. You know, not that you're interested in doing that, but if it did happen, you would figure out a way through it. So contemplate that this has occurred, that, you know, the repossessors showing up for your car, the bank is foreclosed on your house, you know, all you've got left is your clothes and, you know, a little bit of money to buy for food for today. And walk through the scenarios of what decisions you might make. Not that you're tied to those decisions, but you're just playing that out in the mind so that you see that you can still survive and you confront this so that the mind isn't holding on to all the things that you've got around you thinking that this is the only way that you can be peaceful. If you can imagine yourself and your life in a lesser of a life in terms of material possessions, and you can see that you can be just as content and peaceful or probably maybe even more content or more peaceful in that situation, then you can see that life goes on and that you are able to continue forward, that you don't need all these things necessarily in your life. And in YouTube, uh, Brandon asked, how do we know we are releasing craving as opposed to suppressing them? Yeah, so if you're doing breathing mindfulness meditation and generosity, that's that generalized training to let it go. And then these contemplations or putting the mind in the situation where it's like confronting and desensitizing the mind with like the spiders and the car and the other examples that I gave, you'll experience what the Buddha calls maturing and release. So what happens is it's almost like an accumulation of benefits and you can almost sometimes feel the craving release from the mind where the pressure is released and the way that you'll know that it's completely eliminated is when you enter into that situation and the mind is in discontent so if every time i saw a spider i got fearful and i got upset and my mind was shaken up because of it then that means that the craving is still there if you've gone through this desensitization that i'm explaining and then you see spiders and you're like oh okay there's no fear there whatsoever. The mind remains peaceful and, and calm and joyful. That's how you know that the craving has been eliminated. It's not suppressed. Because if the craving is suppressed, then there's still going to be fear. Mind's still going to be uncalm. It's still going to be upset. Because you can't suppress a craving, desire, attachment and eliminate discontentedness. You have to eliminate the craving, desire, attachment in order to eliminate the discontentedness. So if, if a craving is suppressed, there's still going to be discontentedness in the mind. When you eliminate the craving, you've eliminated the discontentedness and you'll no longer experience discontentedness or the fear in that situation ever again. That's how you'll know that it's been eliminated and not suppressed. That seems to be all the new questions other than middle ways questions that, uh, that I asked before. Would you like to see what those? 
yeah, we have more time, so let's go ahead and open up to any questions you guys have. If you guys are done with discussing eliminating fears or if there's some other questions that come up later, you guys are welcome to ask those. But yeah, we can handle any questions you guys have, starting with middle way. Now, Tonka has another uh, question. Sometimes I can see that my that I cause my discontentedness and then feel frustrated that I do that. That adds to my more discontentedness. Yeah, this is being discontent because you're discontent. I, I used to experience this too. That's why I laugh at it. Um, because what this is, is the mind's craving peacefulness, right? It's craving the, the joy. It's craving the calm, right? It's craving enlightenment. And then when you get discontent, like say my, my mug broke and it's like you get angry or frustrated and you're like, oh, I'm not enlightened yet or I'm not experiencing that peaceful mind yet. So it's like craving on top of craving on top of craving, which is producing these layers of discontentedness. So you need to get to the point where you eliminate the craving for peacefulness. Understand that it's a journey. Understand it's gradual learning, this gradual training, this gradual practice, this gradual progress, that you're going to experience some discontentedness. You can't just snap the fingers and get to enlightenment. There's going to be this gradual progress. So allow the mind to go through that and just observe that there's less and less and less discontentedness in the mind and you're working in the right direction. That's the best way to do it. Relieve the pressure of having to be perfect today because that's not possible. Middle way asks, I would like to get more detail on how to implement the non-self. Practice the personal existence as non-self with an example. I understand the concept, but when the craving, desire, attachment is appear, the knowledge of non-self fade away. Okay, so you need to deeply soak into the mind that there is no permanent self. And that can occur from listening to talks by a teacher like we've done last week and other times. It can be from having personal discussions with the teacher because I can ask you questions and kind of get you thinking and reflecting and thinking about these and you can ask more questions. So there needs to be that intellectual learning. Then you need to be reflecting at different times in your day where you can sit and be quiet you know, think about this physical body and this mind and really deeply soak into the mind that you are not this physical body. You are not this mind. This is not who you are. In the meditation that I teach to realize non-self in chapter 11 of volume one will help you to do that. Soak into the mind that I am not the body. I am not the mind. You know, these things aren't you. There is no self, right? So that meditation is there to help you deeply soak that into the mind. So you've got to get that really soaked into the mind. So then in daily life, when somebody says something agreeable, like, oh, you're so beautiful or you're so handsome or I really like your hair. When you hear those things right away, you've got to trigger in the mind that, ah, there's going to potentially be some pleasant feelings. Let me not allow the mind to do that. You can almost feel the pleasant feelings rush into the mind if there's that holding on to the personal existence view. So cut that off and let that go. Don't allow those pleasant feelings to come in because if you allow those pleasant feelings to come in, then it's only a matter of time before these disagreeable speech happens and then there's going to be painful feelings. So wherever you hear agreeable things about the self-image or self-identity, Cut that off, cut that off, cut that off. Don't let the mind 
experience those pleasant feelings. And if you can become aware of the four foundations of mindfulness, which is described in chapter five of volume one, the four foundations of mindfulness are the bodily sensations, the feelings, the condition of the mind, and the mental objects. So you need to understand what those are and practice where you can experience the bodily sensations associated with the pleasant feelings arising so that you can cut off these pleasant feelings as bodily sensations. And then the same thing if there's any painful feelings that are arising associated with the self-image or self-identity, you need to be able to observe those as bodily sensations and cut those off and let them go. So that way you're gaining the discipline to be able to control the mind. And now when you do that enough times and you accumulate enough situations where you've observed the either pleasant feelings or painful feelings arising related to the self-image or self-identity, you've observed them as bodily sensations and you've cut them off and cut them off and cut them off. And you've done that over multiple times then eventually you get to the point where those feelings don't arise anymore. You don't even experience any bodily sensations. So when somebody compliments you, you might say, thank you. I appreciate your kindness. Oh, you're so uh, nice or whatever you might say to them. Uh, But it doesn't produce conditioned, pleasant feelings in the mind. And then when you hear somebody say something disagreeable that would normally generate painful feelings, what you'll notice is that those painful feelings don't arise anymore. But you'll need to do this over multiple situations. You can't just eliminate the self in one week or one month. It takes a year or two or or longer for you to be very diligent and aware that when people are talking and they're saying things about your self-image or self-identity, you need to be aware of those bodily sensations that are arising associated with pleasant feelings and painful feelings so that you can get a handle of this and cut this off. So if you're not observing and you haven't developed mindfulness enough to observe those bodily sensations, that's an important step, not just to eliminate personal existence view, but all discontent feelings. The Buddha explains that someone who has developed mindfulness to the point where they can observe the bodily sensations and they can cut it off and let it go easily, he says this person is very close to enlightenment. So you'll need to develop that. And This is where personal guidance can once again be helpful, that you're going to need to talk about personal existence view and understand it. So, Tony, if you could share the link so that they can schedule a personal session if they'd like, they're welcome to schedule a personal session. These are really important to help you to talk about personal existence view and start processing it and start reflecting on it. And then at that same time, you may need help with the four foundations of mindfulness so that you can start becoming aware of that. And then you start practicing this in your daily life where you start having that awareness of the bodily sensations. And when you hear these things that people are saying about the self-image or self-identity, you start being able to cut it off and cut it off and cut it off. And eventually you don't see it as agreeable speech and disagreeable speech. The only reason why it's agreeable and disagreeable is because they're still craving in the mind, wanting to hear agreeable things or not wanting to hear disagreeable things. So eventually we get to the point where you just realize it's just speech. It's just sound. It's just sound coming into the ears and the mind doesn't need to be discontent or shaken up or uncalm when there's these words or these sounds coming into the mind that you're not going to be able to permanently hear 
things that are agreeable or things that are disagreeable. So you let go of the craving of wanting to hear things agreeable and not wanting to hear things disagreeable. And you just realize it's just sounds. It's just people talking and sounds coming into the ears and you don't necessarily need to allow the mind to cling or hold on to it. Yes, sir. I think that's all the questions for now. Take me a minute to post that link to Facebook and YouTube. Sure. Thank you for that, Tony. I appreciate that. I'm sure the students will appreciate that as well. So thank you all for joining for today's class. As you see, this is just kind of another tool that will help you to understand how to eliminate these specific craving desire attachments as it relates to fear. So that's why this is towards the end of the book, because if you've built up in this program and you've built up in the book your understanding of the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path, then this is just taking what you already know and applying it in a very unique and specific situation. So where you're observant of these fears coming into the mind, if you can put together this plan to desensitize it, great, work with that. Where you need help, then you can reach out through posting in Facebook, sending a private message, asking a question in, in one of these classes, or you can schedule personal guidance if you like. So this is how you would eliminate fears. And an enlightened being has no fear whatsoever. They don't fear spiders, they don't fear heights, they don't fear their own death, they don't fear the death of the people close to them or anything like this. So an enlightened being will have eliminated 100% of all fears. Because when the mind is fearful, it's shaken up. It's not liberated and it's not disciplined because there's still cravings in there that are causing the mind to be shaken up. So by applying the breathing mindfulness meditation and generosity over a consistent long-term period, you're gradually training the mind to let those go. But then where there's these specific fears, you can eliminate those by putting the mind in those situations and train it that there's nothing to fear and to start associating the experiences that you're having looking at a spider or heights or whatever that there's nothing to fear you're not causing harm so no harm is going to come to you the spider is going to go on the the heights aren't going to cause death or anything like that and you can look at the mind real deeply because some of these fears are actually sometimes related to fear of death right so it might be a fear of the spider right but then it also might be afraid of the spider biting you and causing your death. So you need to look at that as well. Same thing with heights. It might be the fear of being up high, but it's also the fear of falling and dying, right? So oftentimes the fear of death is motivating many of these fears. So you'll need to dissect it and look at that. And that's where you might need a teacher's help. And you're always welcome to reach out for help. So next week in our Sunday class, we're going to be in chapter 18 which is titled God's Creative Action. You have free will. This is gonna help you to understand this being of God. Not that you need to understand the being of God in order to get to enlightenment, but some people would like to have a relationship with God, and I'm gonna help you understand how to have a relationship with God while still getting to enlightenment. And then if you're not interested in a relationship with God, I'm going to teach you how to do that where you don't need to have a relationship with God and you can still get to enlightenment. So by having this understanding, then you can have the true reality of this being God so that you can either choose to have a relationship or not. Your enlightenment isn't dependent on whether you have a relationship with God or not. But if you'd like to, there are certain things that you've probably learned in the past that the mind has been conditioned 
about this being God that aren't necessarily true. Like, for example, a lot of people are taught to fear God, right? That's why this chapter is first, and then the chapter about God is after this. A lot of people have been taught to fear God, and this is not the way to experience enlightenment. Is If somebody was interested in a relationship with God and they were fearing God, they would never get to enlightenment in that situation. So, a practitioner who's interested in enlightenment can have a relation with God, but there's things you're going to need to learn in order to do that that are going to most likely be different than what you've learned in the past. And if you're not interested in relation with God, I will help you with that as well. And then you'll be able to progress forward understanding this. One of the biggest myths in Buddhist teachings is some people feel that the Buddha didn't teach about God. And people say that the Buddha denied the existence of God. And this actually isn't true, but you'll see it every once in a while if you're around different Buddhist communities or different groups or things like this. If you look in his teachings, he actually teaches about God because there were people during his lifetime that believed in God. They actually believed in multiple gods. So he needed to teach about this in order to help people get to liberation and get to enlightenment. So he helped people to understand this being in order to continue to progress on the path to enlightenment. But he never put God as a central figure in his teachings. Instead, he put you as the central figure, that it's your decisions, it's your training, it's you accumulating wisdom that's going to actually get you to enlightenment. God doesn't grant enlightenment. So that's why you can have a relationship with God or you don't have to have one with God. Your enlightenment is determined based on your decisions, not what God is doing. But I'll explain all this to you next week in Sunday's class when we discuss chapter 18. And you're welcome to read that before class so then we can have a more detailed discussion about it. This Wednesday, we're going to be doing breathing mindfulness meditation together. So you're welcome to come together as a group to encourage, support, and motivate each other in our meditation practice. And then, of course, each Saturday I'm teaching the Pali Canon and English Study Group that you're welcome to join at any time. There's really no official start of that. We just kind of keep going around and around. There's volumes 2 through 13, and we're in volume 11 now. So you're welcome to join that if you'd like. Some people wait until after they've gone through the group learning program once or twice before they will actually join that program. Or some people do them at the same time. You're able to do that too, depending on the amount of time that you have in your schedule. So I'll see you in one of these future classes, perhaps either Wednesday, Saturday, or Sunday. And in the meantime, have a very lovely and wonderful rest of your day. We'll see you next time. Sawadee Thank you for listening to this podcast. To provide support for this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha. To access more teachings, visit buddhadailywisdom.com. There, you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Remember to establish a daily, consistent meditation practice, along with learning and practicing these teachings. A well-developed meditation practice is the foundation in which to train the mind to attain enlightenment.